0: Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. In sport, athletes are often asked who in opposing teams they would like to have on their own team or, or maybe what an opponent they admire the most. These questions provide fascinating insight into how athletes rate their peers as it's sincere feedback and acknowledgement from, from people in the know. So from one competitive industry, and that's a professional sport, to another competitive industry, funds management. Livewire recently asked 21 fund managers a very similar question. And that is, if you had to invest in someone else's fund, whose fund would you invest it in? Fund managers that made this list included famous investor Stanley Drunkenmiller from overseas and Blackbird Ventures from back home that have famously picked the likes of um, Canva and Culture Amp and, and and others well before their IPO. Our guest for this episode was selected by two Australian fund managers from the list, as the fund that they were happy to go on the record for and say that they'd invest their own funds in this. So some listeners will be familiar with this fund manager and but if you're not just be aware that many fund managers in Australia, in the Australian industry think highly of him and his fund. We're speaking with Nick Cregan from Fairlight. Nick, welcome to the Invested Best podcast.
2: Thanks very much Ted, it's an absolute pleasure to be here.
1: Now, uh, Nick, as I mentioned in that in that um fairly long intro you you were chosen by two of your peer fund managers on livewise recent peas it's the fund manager that they would entrust their own savings with so um, let's start off there why do you think that was the case
2: well blatant bribes to start off with so uh, cash payments are always <laughs> useful um, and and that introduction was very very generous and to be sort of muttered amongst that list of global investors um, we're, we're absolutely sort of delighted to be amongst Uh that company, but I think that really the the guys that you're speaking about um, in their own right are fantastic investors with great track records over a long period of time. I, I think we, we like to think it comes down to, to three aspects. Firstly, the first piece is a, a repeatable but very very clear and easy to communicate process, um, which, which is you know, if you if you're generating returns, um, I think the comfort that comes from being able to do that in a repeatable manner. Is very important. The second thing is the communication with our clients. So we we, we we go out of our way to really, excuse the term, lift the kimono and, and let people know what we do, how we do it and how we think. Um, and it's quite consistent in the way that we write and communicate to our clients and, and speak to them, um, trying to avoid as much jargon as possible. I think that the industry itself is um, overrun by financial jargon. It just doesn't need to be there. And, and the first, third element, I think, is the culture that we've built within Fairlight. So Many managers, and we're trying to avoid this outcome to our best ability, which is managers get to a certain size and a certain level of uh, call it success or whatever it might be, and ultimately end up imploding because the personalities can't get along, or if there's an overbearing personality within the firm that makes it a, a nightmare to work there. We, we try and run as flat a structure as possible um, and make sure that we, you know, to, to the degree that we can. And you being a sportsman, would we'll probably identify this, trying to leave our ego at the door as much as we can. Um, and, and, and try to um, include everyone in, in in the wins, if you like. Um, and we think that that culture leaves us in pretty good stead and it's been recognised, I think, through our industry. So we're delighted by those three aspects.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to exploring um, a lot of what you just said there in more detail. But um, before we jump into that and your investment journey and your investment philosophy, let's start off with the fund's name. That's Fairlight. Um, what are the origins of this name? Why would you go with it?
2: Yeah, it's um you know for, for a lot of people that don't live in Sydney um and, and for people who don't live on the Northern Beaches of Sydney it wouldn't be a name that's particularly um, uh, relevant to them or they they wouldn't recognise it but it's actually a tiny little beach that sits in the coves of um, on the on the harbour side of the Northern Beaches and I've got a long history with that little beach I was wading around there as a toddler at the year the, the, the age of three and, and then moved away for a long time spent a lot of time overseas working et cetera. Et cetera. and. When I started to form my own family, we, we moved back to the area because it's an absolutely beautiful little spot and um, I was serving some um, some time out of the industry on, on what's called gardening leave where you leave a firm and you, you, you're deciding what to do with the rest of your life and I uh, had left Evans and Partners and was sitting on that little beach and my wife who has a background in funds management as well on the marketing side, we're discussing what we wanted to do with our lives and we sort of said, well, um, we know a bunch of really good guys who we'd like to work with and guys and girls that we'd like to work with. How about we form a global smaller mid cap uh, fund because that's our that's my history in investing. Uh, what are we going to call it? Well, sitting on this little beach and fair light. Well, fair. I mean, that's not a bad place to start, is it? You treat your clients fairly. You treat your your partners and everyone in, involved in the business as fairly as possible, and you usually have a pretty good outcome. And then light um, transparency. So transparency in the way that you invest, in the way that you think, in the way that you communicate with your clients, and so. I threw that name into the hat with the guys that we ultimately formed the business with, and it stuck. And so, Fairlight is the is the name of the firm, and, and there's a little bit of history there as well, which is quite a nice little tie-in.
1: Okay, well, it's, it's fascinating to get to get that insight. Now, um, Nick, your fund invests in global small and mid caps, which uh, I'm I'm keen to start off there. Why small and mid cap international stocks?
2: Very good question. Well, um, the first thing is that small caps um, outperform large caps over long periods of time. So we've got about 100 years of data in the U.S., uh, and similar length of data in, in Europe, albeit not quite as long, I think about 80 years or so. But if you use the US data, um, small caps outperform large caps by about one and a half to approaching 2% per annum over that time period, which when you compound that out over a long period of time, that's a pretty exceptional uplift to investing. So smaller companies, they have a longer runway to grow um, and believe it or not, that large companies acquire the smaller ones not the other way around. So you often find yourself getting taken out by larger competitors, which is a nice little uplift to your returns. Um, so from a starting point, the return profile of small caps is, um, is superior, which is great. The second element is that, um, um, especially outside of, um, uh, the, um, call it the, um, traditional sort of understanding of financial markets. Um, a lot of people don't realise just how small Australia is in the scheme of things. So um, Australian equities make up about to the 3% of global equity markets. So why restrict yourself to just Australia? And by the way, when I think we should, we'll get into it, but when we run our screens on the Australian market, there's only about three or four uh, businesses that actually pass muster on our definition of, um, of of quality, which we'll get into. The last element is that the universe there is actually quite a lot larger than you might think in smalls um, as well. So we can invest from $500 million in market cap all the way up to about $30 billion in market cap um, and still be considered a mid-cap investor in the US. Um, so to give you an idea, the, the weighted average market cap of our portfolio um, has averaged around sort of 13 to to 15 billion um, since the inception of the fund. Um, that is very very similar to sort of the ASX 200. So I think it would be about stock number 30 in the ASX 200 if we were stock, if we were an Australian listed business. Um, so sometimes we get the question from investors: if you're small and mid, does that mean you're higher risk? Uh, the answer to that is well, if you're comfortable with. ASX 6200 from a risk profile, but you'd like the opportunity set that comes from a global mindset, then global small and mids um, it could be the place for you to consider.
1: Nick, when it comes to international equities, which you, know, you do focus in on, much of the media in Australia focuses on the large tech names like Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Meta, et cetera. Tell us a bit more about how smaller international companies are tracking compared to these large, in particular, tech names. Um, that we're fam- more familiar
2: with. Well, it's actually a really opportune time to be discussing this because um, as I s- s- sort of stated a few moments ago, small businesses, uh, listed businesses generally outperform large companies over long periods of time. And so what happens is that the small and mid-cap index usually trades at a one to two PE turn premium to that of large cap. And it, it does quite so quite consistently. What we've seen over the last call it two years or so is a reversal of that. Um, So the smaller mid cap index as compared to the large cap index is trading at the biggest discount it has for the past 25 years, um, which is an interesting place to start. And to your point, a lot of the um, reason for that has been the outperformance of the FANG, FAM, whatever complex you want to call it, the large US tech businesses that which have dominated now we're not here to say that you should know those businesses we think they're fantastic franchises and they've got a place in people's portfolios but the dominance there has been so stark and that rubber band has been pulled so far that the outperformance of the large cap tech, tech industry in our view um, could be due for at least a little bit of retracement um, compared to that of the small and mid-cap index um, so there's, there's some fantastic companies within the small and mid-cap Um, sphere. Uh, The problem is that it's kind of bifurcated. So we invest in um, 100% of our portfolio holdings are profitable. Um, Just to to frame up the conversation here, about 85% of them were listed in 2008, 2009. Not a single one of those businesses made a loss, to give you an idea of the kind of companies we invest in. So when we're investing in technology, we're investing in profitable businesses. Now, the small and mid-cap market has been bifurcated into those that are profitable and trading on usually reasonable Multiples as compared to their history, and then those that are selling a promise or selling a business plan. Really, in some cases, where they're not making any profit, they're uh, investing pretty heavily in growth. Um, sg and is is very very high because their marketing spends high, R and D is very high, but they tend to trade on a multiple of sales. Um, and before this little sort of growth hiccup that we've had over the last couple of months those businesses were trading at 30, sometimes up to 50 times sales. Now there's been a bloodbath there. Um, That part of the tech market has been carted out and Thankfully, we, we weren't there for that, that period. But we don't think that those companies are going to rebound to the same sort of multiples they were before. And at the same time, you've got um, the large-cap tech, which um, we thought there was going to be a bit of a canuppance there when Facebook and, and Netflix whiffed, but um, Microsoft and some of the other earnings have come through just fine. But um, I, I guess I'm providing a little bit of nuance there. There's always sort of three asset classes to think about, large-cap tech, speculative tech in the small and mid-cap space, and then where we invest, which is profitable tech. The last element, which is profitable tech, is is trading at quite a discount now. So to give you an idea, we're overweight um, technology in our portfolio and the portfolio itself is trading at the largest discount to what we think is fair value since the inception of the fund outside of a few days within the COVID uh, 2020 uh, sell-off. So we think the opportunity there is actually pretty stark.
1: I was going to suggest we go and explore some of the companies and how you screen from what is no doubt a large universe of stocks that you could invest in. But before we get to that, I'd, I'd like to um, really pull on that thread there that you said about you invest in profitable tech. Can you provide us an example of a company that meets those requirements?
2: Sure. Well, there's, a, there's a company based in Germany called Nemechek. Uh It competes with Autodesk in the US. And so what Nemacheck does is essentially um, manages the end-to-end build um, of a building or a facility. So at the front end, they provide 3D CAD CAM simulation uh, software to uh, architects, and then that's, um, that product or that process is handed off to the builder, and they've got a product that uh, manages the build uh, process from end to end. And, then, and, and by using that software, their clients are scraping out higher margins, so the building companies that are using that software. usually run them with skinny margins, I call it to 300 basis points, and they can by using this software, they can eke out another 150 to 200 basis points of margin, which is huge for them. Uh, and then the third element is that um, they uh, hand off that that building to the facilities manager and for HVAC and for any any other element that that's required to run that building on an ongoing basis. All the plans and how that building has come together essentially sits on that system. Now, um, that that. Business is highly, highly profitable, but there's also a few elements to it which we quite like. So it's 51% owned by its founder, uh, so we've got that nice alignment. Um, they don't have the same problem that technology businesses have fallen victim to over the last few years where um, there's a, a what's called stock-based compensation uh, running through normally through the PL and um, which is, in our view, a cash cost. For some unknown reason, the sell side have managed to uh, getting cahoots with most of the technology businesses and address that cost as a non-cash item and it's stripped out of the p which yeah. is a completely fabricated to a number. So what we like about Nemechek is their accounts are really clean. They don't play those sort of games that we see in the US. It's aligned with its owner. It generates sort of 50% returns on invested capital and it's got a very, very long way, runway for growth. So that's a little bit of, a I guess, a, a flavour of the businesses that we like in the tech space.
1: Okay, now I I read that your portfolio is um, segmented into three types of investment opportunities. One is high quality growth companies. Another is stable compounders, and, a, and the third being um, low risk turnarounds. So, so let's start off with the first, and that's high quality growth companies. Um, now, many investors say that they invest in quality businesses, but the word quality. Can mean different things to different people so i'm interested how do you define a quality business
2: yeah i think it's really become the most overused word in finance hasn't it so i mean it wasn't so long ago that you know people would define themselves as either a growth or value and, and quality has really slipped into the equation there but we are pretty um formulaic in the way that we we um define it and then we're looking for ways in which that quality can be defended. And so the way that we define it is what's called the cash return on cash invested or croaky score. Uh, So essentially, it's a return on invested capital metric, which shows you the amount of cash that a business generates compared to the assets that it has on the ground. But the element that we get a little more, I guess, um, strict on or have a high hurdle for is the capital um, base. So there's a lot of shenanigans that can go on in accounting, and a lot of it comes through in depreciation, amortization schedules, and also acquisitions that are made over time. So to the capital base, we add back 100% of the amortization, accumulated amortization that business has generated, 100% of the accumulated depreciation that business has generated, along with any write downs in assets um, that have sprung up from poor acquisitions. And if a business can generate a 15% return on that fully costed capital base that's our definition of quality so maybe a little more prescriptive than most people out there on, on our on our description there and then what we're looking for is um, ways in which that 15% return can be defended into the future so that's essentially what we're looking to do
1: okay now uh, can you provide an example of a business that meets these quality requirements and fits into this bucket?
2: Yeah, I can and I can provide it across three those three buckets if you like and sort and of d- dive in very quickly into each one if that's of some use yeah, to you. Yeah, so, yeah,
1: that would be useful, thanks.
2: So so on the on the gross side, we've got um we've got Tektronic. Um, most people haven't heard of the actual business, but if they looked in their in their garage, they'd probably have a pretty good idea of of, of what this business does. If you've got that fluoro yellow Ryobi tool um, that sits there and you've got a battery pack, or if you wanted to pony up a few extra bucks, you would have maybe bought the Milwaukee. Uh, tools. Uh, I went for the former. <laughs> so did I. As a, a new dad who doesn't uh, doesn't spend a lot of time tinkering around in the backyard, other than putting together together flat packs from IKEA, um, I really didn't need the really expensive stuff. But the, the interesting there, thing there is, as a user of that product, I am now locked into that ecosystem. So I've I've bought my first power tool um, and it's a Ryobi drill and I'm using that to put together Ikea flat packs and and put up protective equipment around the house so that my two-year-old doesn't fall off steps etc but that battery pack can be used to run every tool that I subsequently buy from Ryobi so the chances of me now purchasing another tool is fairly remote because I've already made the investment in the battery pack so the next uh, lawnmower that I might buy or hedge trimmer or whatever, it's more than likely it's going to be a Ryobi power pack. Now, Tektronic is the leader in um, in sort of this transition and they've got a a, a big uh, install base now of, of batteries. I think that the, uh, the the stack, something like one in four households in the US now has a Ryobi power uh, drill pack. Um, so they're, they're sort of the incumbent. And so what that means is it's re- driving a lot of repeat purchases. And it also means that when they're launching new, products, um, the the decision for, they if you the, to extend into new categories, for instance, like um, vacuum cleaners, whatever it might be, they become the default uh, decision in the new category as well. Um, and then towards the end of the useful life of that tool, um, or, or rather the useful, useful life of the battery, um, the, the battery has a replacement cycle as well of about five years or so. So they've got this recurring revenue stream on, on both the tool side and then the battery side, which is pretty impressive. So that business has grown the top line by about 15% per annum for the past 10 years. And, you know, that number might not sound particularly big, but you've got margin expansion um, and some buybacks to go and you're sort of looking at 20% on EPS growth, which we think is reasonably sustainable. Over sort of the next decade or so, so that that'd be an example of a of a growth business in the portfolio. That business generates um, just looking at the numbers there, it's eighteen point six percent croaky over twenty twenty one, and that's been trending up over the last three years. So it's a combination of things we like to see: margin expansion and expanding croaky. So that's the growth growth cohort. And before in we the,
1: move up, yep. before we move on to you, uh, that that second bucket down. Um, no. So for listeners that are interested in looking further into Techtronic, out of interest, what what exchange is that um is that listed on
2: that's listed on in the hong kong exchange um and so we we typically don't invest directly into emerging markets um so this is a legacy holding for us when hong kong wasn't under to direct chinese ownership and so you won't see his own or purchase purchased um uh, businesses directly on, on mainland china however um there is some um, there is some caveats that they've sort of moved half of their manufacturing over to Vietnam, um, and the reporting that this business um, undertakes is sort of quite Western in its approach. So it's it's a dramatic background. So it's family owned, and the and the owners are German, but happen to have a manufacturing base in China. That's a long winded way of saying it's listed in Hong Kong.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, now let's move on to the next bucket, and that's um, stable compounders. So, what type of track record are you looking at for a business and management team to be able to, just to demonstrate they do have stable compounding growth? And um, once again, if you could provide you know a real example of of that, that would be appreciated.
2: For sure. So, in the stable compounding bucket, we're not we're, we're not looking for those businesses that are generating supernormal growth. So, it's usually GDP plus a little bit, um, and, and and a management team that's on your side, taking out costs, expanding margins a tiny bit, and then maybe aggressive on the capital allocation side so either making small tuck-in acquisitions consistently or buying back stock when it's on sale. Um, so that, that's, that's what we're looking for there. A, a business that fits the bill there is a company called Copart. Um, usually a company that most people haven't heard of but it's one of the best businesses um, that I've come across um, in terms of its defensibility um, that flies under the radar for most investors. So what does Copart do? It, it acts as an auctioneer of damaged or rain uh, hail damaged or accident damaged vehicles and it sits as an intermediary between an insurance company on one side of the transaction who's trying to get rid of literally millions of vehicles a year that have been involved in accidents or hailstorms or whatever it might be and on the other side of the transaction you've got parts dealers so people that are selling mufflers or individual doors or whatever it might be into smash repairs or increasingly used car dealers and what. what this is becoming very apparent in when they're selling into increasingly into international markets. So you might have a BMW which has been involved in a fender bender where the um, passenger side airbag is deployed. You can't sell that vehicle again in the US, but you can certainly sell it into um, developing European, Western, Eastern European countries, or into Asia, for instance, where airbags aren't even a feature on the on the on the um, on the passenger side, for instance. So a lot of these vehicles get sold internationally. Huge barriers to entry here. So two of them. Um, The first one is physical. Um, So you need to have leases or land holdings around metropolitan cities for which you need a permit to essentially run a junkyard. Uh, And so your ability to get one of those permits now is almost impossible. So to start from scratch here, you need thousands and thousands of these permits because um, there's a density advantage that comes from towing. So you need these very localized holding yards. And the second element is is that, once again, an overused term, but the Amazon effect here of buyers on one side and sellers on the other. Um, so the, the sellers being the insurance companies, you've aggregated most of those, and then you've got the buyers, which is literally thousands and thousands of small um, businesses looking to buy th- those goods. And, and once it's formed into a sort of flywheel, very hard to break in. So the, the industry in the US is a duopoly between Copart and IAA, uh, and Copart has a very large structural advantage insofar as it owns all of its land, so it can't get stopped out from an end-of-lease perspective and lose that advantage that it has around metropolitan cities. So the business nicely compounds out over a long period of time, buying back stock, uh, entering into new geographies internationally, etc. Uh, it's been a fantastic holding for, for Fairlight since the inception of the fund.
1: Now, this is by no means meant to be a, a deep dive on Copart, but I am interested in this company as I've only just learned about it and uh, I'm just thinking about the last year or two and that in recent times global shipping has been challenged and um, new cars have been hard to source so I was just wondering has this affected Copart and all in being able to source product or have they been able to kind of navigate these times?
2: Well we were topping up our holdings of of during the COVID-induced panic um, when it was sort of thought that no one was ever going to drive again and no one's going to have an accident um, and and the shares subsequently sold off. We've actually been trimming our position um, and and partially for the reasons you've just stated there where global uh, supply chains are very, very challenged. So new cars are expensive and they're hard to come by and at the same time you've got um, demand on the other side where people don't want to be getting public transport because they're still at the, at the fringes concerned about c- catching COVID, so they'd rather be in their own cars. So it's meant that the used car price in the in the United States and actually globally is, is absolutely exploded. So we've had Nirvana for Copart, which is a combination of used car pricing being very, very strong. And remember, they clip a ticket on the option. So strong pricing means their gross profit dollars are gonna be a lot stronger as those um, units flow through their facilities. And the second time you've had the economies opening up and to some degree it looks like people have forgotten how to drive so the accident rates are up a bit, um, people are distracted so they're uh, driving with high use of mobile phones um, as you probably are you, uh, au okay with when you're driving to work and look at the people next to you, they seem to be on their mobile phone all the time. Um, so that's driving accident rates a little bit higher as well. And then the third thing is that natural phenomenons like um, Hurricanes and storms and all that sort of thing, um, especially for us living in Sydney, seem to be becoming a more regular occurrence. And so there's a higher rate of, of, um, of uh, write-offs for vehicles in, in that sphere as well. So the shares have responded accordingly. Um, and so we've taken that opportunity to take that weight of that position down a little bit. Okay, fascinating.
1: Now, the third bucket, low-risk turnarounds. Tell us about your process or, or in fact, the, the metrics you look at to kind of get some confidence that something is low risk well
2: that's right i mean the the, the thing about turnarounds is they often don't turn so what we're not <laughs> looking what we're not interested in here is uh, businesses that are broken and we need like a full restructure of the of the business uh, underlying uh, unit profitability is no longer there and it's highly cyclical so we're, we're not interested in that uh, we're interested in businesses that at their core are still highly profitable but they need a bit of love and attention to refocus management or to get back to what's special about them. So we don't consider ourselves activist investors, but we spend a lot of time speaking to management teams and will coerce a little bit where we need to, where we don't think things are going as well as they should be. So uh, we did run an activist campaign against Hexel, for instance, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, But in that low-risk turnaround bucket, it usually involves a little bit more engagement with management, but the payoffs there can be pretty stark. Um, And so to to give you a bit of a view, we, we own the Domino's UK Business. So everyone would be familiar with Domino's here in Australia. Um, I was working in Schroeder's for some time. We owned about 10% of the issue capital of the Aussie business So I got to know that franchise here really well. Moved to the States, uh, worked with a lady called Jenny Jones in the US. She was a, she's one of got one of the best track records in US small caps, um, going around. So under her tutelage, introduced it to the idea that the Australian business was actually a little bit further ahead of the US, believe it or not, on their digitization of um, ordering on apps, et cetera. This is showing my age about sort of how long ago this was. and. we we took a similar sort of position in in the US business and that, and that, um, that was a successful investment. So by the time we got to looking at the UK asset, we had seen this playbook a few times before and the underlying economics of this business were fantastic. So for every franchisee that opened a store, they were getting a two year cash on cash payback for every store that they opened. Um, margins were record high and the, the, typically the franchisees own multiple stores. So, um, you know, these guys were quite wealthy, so there was nothing wrong with the business. The problem was there was two errors that had been made. Um, the first one was allowing the relationship between the C suite and the board to become damaged um, with the franchise eBay so that they they really didn't get along. And that was impairing their ability to grow. And the second problem with that is that they'd expand into the Scandic region. Um, And Ted, I I don't know if you spend much time in Sweden, but to me, they don't look like they eat a lot of uh, fast food. So I think it's a pretty bad market for fast food and very high um, labor costs, etc. And so they'd expand into those parts. And we we sat down with management and um, we had a discussion with them. And then um, we went over and met with the franchisees and private equity and a whole bunch of other people that are involved in that business and it became pretty clear to us that the problem was with, with the, the chairman um, and he was up for re-election, so there was a good chance he was going to get moved along. And, and with that, we thought there was a reasonable chance of the management team sort of following suit. Um, so we, we took a small position. We sat down with the then CFO um, and he was running the same maths as us. We're like, hey, look, if you exit the Scantic regions, we think you get an uplift of your earnings of Y and it became pretty apparent that he was pretty sharp on that as well but unfortunately he um, died in a snorkeling accident so you had basically no one running the shop um, and as a testament to the business just how well it sailed through that period with really um, half a rudder running the business so um fast forward um the the chairman's been um to, has left the business or not been re-elected the the, the ceo has been moved on and there's a whole new us board that came into the business off the the back of a turnaround of a business called Six Flags. And so the US management team, uh, a little bit more focused, brought in the CEO of Costa Coffee, and he started making some really good decisions early on and rebuilding the relationship with the franchisees. They came out with a statement, sort of a few months ago now that um, the franchisees are now working in lockstep. They've um, recommitted to opening stores. Um, the economics of the business is, is fantastic. They've exited the Scandic region, which drives a nice uplift to earnings. And so that that is a pretty good example of the kind of turnarounds we're looking for. Underlying economics are fine, but we need a little bit of love and attention to get the business back on track.
1: Very interesting. Now, um, I actually know a little bit too much about uh, pizza in different parts of Scandinavia, but that's another another... <laughs> podcast episode for another time. And I think a lot of that's to do with uh, the cost of labour over there. I think,
2: oh, think going great so, yeah.
1: for a pizza in Norway is probably about 50 or 60 bucks these days. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's let's move on for that. Now, um, before we kind of change tact a little, I'm just interested in any, any other stock picks of note uh, for this year or, you know, perhaps next that you haven't covered yet.
2: Yeah, we're quite interested in um, a business called... Uh, Scout 24 based in Germany. So if you're familiar with REA down here in Australia, you would pick up on their business model pretty quickly. They're the dominant property portal in that part of the world. And there's some pretty att- interesting attributes there. So we've um, pr- previously owned um, the uh, London-based business, Right Move before. So we, we're quite fay with these portals. And, and usually the journey is you start with a, Pretty basic subscription to your real estate agent clients, and then over time, by by stealth, I guess you're increasing prices on them by introducing new tiers of premiumisation. To use a word that doesn't actually exi- exist, but you, you're basically saying, "Look, here's your standard package. You'll you'll have your listings on there. But if you want your your property to be at the front page, or you want to be able to send out alerts or whatever, you need to pay an extra hundred bucks a, a a month or whatever it might be." Now, there's companies that have absolutely flexed on that and i would put right move into that that bucket so they've got 10 percent on sort of revenue growth per annum it's almost all come from price um, whereas for scout 24 it's they're very early in that journey so their ability to flex price without completely destroying their relationship with their with their customer base we think is very very strong at the same time when we purchased shares it was they had 30 Odd percent of their uh, net uh, of their uh, market cap in cash, and that entered into a pretty aggressive buyback. Um, so it, that's been caught up in the growth um, sort of sell down, if you like. But to us, the the valuation there looks really compelling, in a business that we think over sort of twelve to eighteen months, no matter what happens in the economy, if they're able to increase the the prices there, they're going to do quite nicely.
1: Yeah, very interesting. In that Australia is behind the curve in many different things that are, are coming out in many different businesses, but w- one of which is not online real estate marketplaces where yeah, the likes of REA and Domain have really led the industry. So it's mm-hmm. fascinating to to see, you know, different parts of the world being catch up mode. And um, I think the the phrase that's often used is that we've we've seen the movie before over here. So um, thanks for sharing that company. Now, um, just taking a bit of a different tact here, we're getting towards the end of the podcast, Nick. And um, Something i want to I want to ask is that I hear you've taken an active decision not to buy into the Australian property market um, and remained all 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 in on your own fund. So um, can you tell us a bit about that decision?
2: Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that you know we, as a team, genuinely believe this is the best way to invest, right? So we've done the work on what small and mid-caps are returned over a long period of time. We don't necessarily feel like it has to be higher volatility or higher risk if you take a lower lower risk approach to what you do. Um, we get to speak to the management teams that we're invested in regularly, and we invest in some of the best businesses around the world and develop markets where we can trust the rule of law and the accounts. Um, and so to us, uh, as a team, it makes perfect sense to be backing our own work and our own analysis um, and, um, you know, to the point where, um, you know, I completely understand where that people don't want to put all of their assets into just one asset class. They want to own some large cap tech and a few other bits of pieces, but for us, this is where really where we've hung our shingle up and we, we also in, in sort of very much of the view that we need to be aligned with our investors. So if we're going through an under, a period of underperformance, we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, Tough, tough pickies. We feel that pain as well, um, and I think that's that's incredibly important. Um, but the, the the decision to to invest only in the fund and not in into property is that I, I think over a longer period of time, it's going to be a superior outcome for uh, for my family personally. And we we need to we, we can do that without less risk because we're not taking on as much leverage. Now the returns of the fund have been very attractive since we started, so that's working out just fine. Um, and you know we're quite happy. Of um, you know, investing all of that money into the fund and, and renting in different parts and wonderful parts of uh, of the city and experiencing different places. Now, if you ask me that question another ten years, I may have cashed out a bit and, and bought a house and thank my very patient wife for the for the uh, for the journey. But at the moment, um, you know, we're both very comfortable investing all of our money behind the strategy in our team. Okay,
1: well, um, thanks for that insight and um, thank you for taking the time to chat today, Nick. It's been absolutely fascinating. We've covered our uh, the croaky acronym, which I think is the first for the show, uh, Scandinavian pizza, moats in power tools, and, and many others. So um, thanks for coming on for the chat today.
2: Thanks. Absolute pleasure. And if uh, if there's an opportunity to come back on, we'd, uh, we'd welcome the opportunity. Thanks, Ted. Yeah, yeah. So
1: if listeners would like to find out more information, please speak with your your Wilson's advisor or visit the Fairlight website directly. Um, this will be available in the episode show notes, including how to contact uh, an advisor if you're new to Wilson's. Okay, that's it for me. If you enjoyed this episode, please... Subscribe to receive all new podcast episodes as they come out and check out the back catalogue of episodes too if you've missed out on any of those as they come out along the journey. I'm Ted Richards. See you next time on the Invest It Best podcast.
0: This podcast has been prepared by Wilsons. Wilsons has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilsons advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilsons may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.